0: In December of 2016, uh, my husband Avery and I found out we were pregnant with our first child. Fast forward in that pregnancy to about 24 weeks, I found out uh, that our baby had a condition called CDH, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Basically, he had a hole in his diaphragm that made it so his large organs would go up into his chest and take up the room where his lungs needed to grow. Babies with this condition have about a 50% chance of living. And so from 26 weeks on, we were not sure if our baby was going to survive or not. Realizing that I might not get to keep him and not knowing if he was going to stay or not was just (sighs) Baby Donovan came at 6.37 in the morning on September 5th, and I got to hold him for about 30 seconds before they needed to cut the cord and take him away and, and resuscitate him and help him to breathe. I didn't know if I would see him again after that. The only thing that that gave me peace in that time was knowing that God already knew what was to come and that he promised to be with us through it all. We had 12 days in the NICU with him. And during that time, it felt like I was walking every day with God as my companion, just like constantly in prayer. After about 10 days, they detected a brain bleed, and we had to take him off of this machine that was keeping him alive, and Avery and I sat there watching our son in this room with a ton of doctors, and all we could see was his tiny top of his head. At that point, I was still praying for a miracle, and We didn't get it. We held our son for the first time and prayed over him and sang to him and read to him and whispered all the things you'd want him to hear into his ear. And we eventually had to say goodbye. Knowing that God has this ability to do miracles I couldn't understand why God didn't answer all of those prayers. It was hard to reshape what my faith looked like with this bitterness. Um, I know it's not easy. It's not going to be easy to be grieving a son that we never got to raise. We've had a daughter since then. She's absolutely wonderful. and. I'm reminded that he's still gonna keep providing for us. But no matter how many kids I have at home with me, Donovan will always be missing. But without God and without my faith, I don't see the hope in it. And I have to cling to that hope that he gives me.
1: Okay. First of all, I want to thank Nikki and Avery who are here with us this morning for their courageous vulnerability uh, in testimony. Thank you so much. The whole body of Christ is uh, encouraged by your, by your transparency and giving us the privilege of walking with you. So thank you. And then let's pray together. Father, Father, um, thank you for these two, your shepherding of them. And our prayer, Father, as we approach this topic of suffering and loss and grief, is that uh, this would not be some sort of academic exercise, but that you'd awaken in each of our souls the courage to live honestly and vulnerably before you and before one another. For therein is hope, therein is healing, therein is uh, comfort. So speak to us now, Father, and give us the grace not only to hear but to respond. And we'll thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the most challenging things that we face as people of faith is the reconciliation of the goodness of God with the reality of suffering. It's just the way the world is and some deal with it by denying suffering and moving towards kind of a prosperity theology. If you pray enough, believe enough, you're granted immunity. That's rubbish, pure heresy and we just wanna sweep that away. On the other side of the coin are are, are those who, in the midst of suffering, feel somehow it might be a sin to grieve or be angry, and we want to talk about that as well this morning. So, the way that we want to approach this is to look at what God has to say about suffering, and then, in order that this isn't an academic exercise, have a moment of response uh, this morning as well, whereby I'll invite you to come and light a candle for a loss in your life that you're grieving, and then to take a moment and grieve as well. So we'll be doing that together, but we, we begin by looking at the reality of suffering and then God's response. In a world in which there's suffering, how does God respond? And then and then the attendant result for us as as humankind. So we begin here by looking together from the Bible at the reality of suffering. And the umbrella reason for suffering in the world is because the world is broken, the world is fallen. We, we aren't yet to the end of the story. We're not uh, a world uh, with every tear dried from every eye, with every disease healed as is foretold in the book of Isaiah and Revelation. We live, in a, we live in a fallen world. And the fall goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3, right from the beginning, blaming hiding, running, disengagement, shame, murder immediately, anger, violence, severed relationships, lying, arrogance, sexual dysfunction, and I'm only in chapter 4 of Genesis, right? So it doesn't take very long for the world to get desperately broken by Genesis chapter 6 so messed up that God decides that a flood is kind of uh, some sort of a plan here to start over again, and then Genesis 9 with Noah, and then Genesis 12 with a nation, and ultimately the coming of Christ, and then ultimately ultimately, Ephesians 1, the end of the story. But in this moment, we are in a very real way feeling the effects of living in a fallen world. So that's the, the umbrella. And then, under that umbrella, I'm going to give you four particular reasons for suffering that are named in the Scripture. So if you want to know these, here they are for you. Number one, uh, some suffering comes because we make bad choices, so some, some of my suffering is my own blame. It says in Galatians chapter 6, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, we reap what we sow. So if I make stupid choices, then I'm going to inherit the fruit of making stupid choices. And this moves all the way from the mundane to the deeply and profoundly tragic. At the mundane level, there are many in the room who are uh, lactose intolerant or have a, have a problem with dairy and you love ice cream at the same time. This is hugely problematic, right? Because though you know it's the wrong choice, uh, you make it. I'm speaking strictly hypothetically here. It couldn't apply to anyone in the room. Uh, And then as you're pondering a mocha ice cream sandwich from Trader Joe's, which is your comfort food, your wife says you know you'll pay the price, and then you say, yeah, I know, whatever, and you eat it anyway and pretty soon you're sneezing and your eyes are watering and then your wife is wagging her finger. It could happen to you. (laughs) So you make bad choices, and that's mundane. All the way to to drunk driving and death and horrific suffering. Second reason that uh, that suffering happens is because we are, at times, the victim of bad choices others make. I played a marching band in high school, a companion fellow drummer was coming home from playing drums at his uh, church worship service, and uh, he drove on the way home through an intersection. His light was green, the other light was red, of course, but a drunk driver completely ran the red light, hit the side of his car, and he was killed instantly at the age of 16. It wasn't his fault. He's a victim of bad choices that others make. Cain murders Abel bad things happen in the world and many people are victimized by the choices made by others third kind of category of suffering is suffering comes through principalities and powers it says in Ephesians 6 that there are there's world forces of darkness in heavenly places principalities and powers what happens in our world is systems are born that Perpetuate suffering and then other people are victimized by those systems. This is sexism, this is racism, this is slavery, this is Dachau, this is the camps in Europe, this is opioid addiction, this is human trafficking, this is, I mean, it's all over the place, right? And so there are people who are the, the victims of suffering not because just of an an individual perpetuating suffering, like a drunk driver running through an intersection, but because of principalities and powers, because systems are in place that perpetuate uh, suffering. So that's a reality as well. And then the last category is this, uh, Luke chapter 13, verse four, God uh, talks about this tower that falls down, and he says, hey, why did the tower fall on these people? The tower fell on these people because those were the people standing there. Not because they were righteous or unrighteous, or good or bad, or they prayed that morning or not. Listen, suffering comes simply because we live in a fallen world. Cells mutate and there's cancer. Uh, DNA uh, doesn't divide right and, and infants suffer and die. <laughs> I was um shoeing with a buddy about 10 years ago and we're hiking in the safe zone down in the trees and someone comes running down from above tree line asking if we'll come help dig. There'd just been an avalanche and uh, someone was buried and so we went and we began digging. And the story was, uh, there was a gal, she'd just moved from the East Coast. Uh, she was 25 years old. She wanted to live in the mountains and so she moved to Seattle. And the guy who was dating her invited her and it was her very first snowshoe trip ever. And uh, he's standing here and she's standing there and the entire hillside gives way, sweeps her away. Her body wasn't found for three days. She could have been standing there, but she wasn't. (laughs) Stuff happens. Fallen world. So, you know, bad choices, victimized by bad choices, principalities and powers, and broken world. Those are the reasons suffering happens. Most suffering happens for one of those four reasons. Okay, but can't God end suffering? Yeah, but here's the thing. God has created a world whose end desire is love and intimacy. And real intimacy requires freedom. True? If I make you love me, it's not love. Love must be chosen, and the reality is love for God wasn't chosen. Rejection of God was chosen instead of love, and rejection leads to sin, and sin leads to rebellion, and rebellion leads to suffering, and here we are. So, yeah, we live in a fallen world, and God can't fix it without denying God's own character, which God's character is such that he wants to be in relationship with those who choose to love God. And so the result of this is that we live in this fallen world where horrific things happen, and unspeakable pain is a reality, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, and the most popular book that tried to address this in my lifetime was written in 1981 by Rabbi Kushner, entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, in which he posited that either God is all-powerful but chooses not to intervene in the world, so God is powerful but distant, or God is intimately involved but too weak to intervene. Either way, not much of a God, actually. Uh, a better articulation, in my opinion, comes from Francis Schaefer, a pastor slash prophet from the 60s, 60, 60, 70s, and 80s, who said this in one of his writings, and I quote uh, directly from him. He says, here's the, here's the reason for suffering. We live in a universe that is a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. And an open system means this. Uh, God can intervene in the world and heal. Uh, Nikki said in the video, God can, God can heal, but God doesn't always heal. God doesn't always intervene. And when God doesn't intervene, it's a closed system. And in a closed system, there's a cause and there's an effect. And if I'm driving past a truck and a truck has a a, a flat tire and its trailer veers into my lane and hits me, the reason that it veered into the lane is I'm feeling the effect of the prior cause, the prior cause being the flat tire. And the flat tire is itself a cause of a prior effect lack of maintenance, perhaps, or a flaw in the tire, but cause-effect, cause-effect, cause-effect. That's the world in which we live, and yes, God can intervene, and yes, God does intervene, but no, God doesn't always intervene. So those are realities, and if then suffering comes from either bad choices, or being victimized by bad choices, or principalities and powers, or the reality that, live in a, that we live in a fallen world, then can I exhort you, please, don't ever be Job's friend and try to explain to somebody why their suffering is happening. Just don't do that. That's not, that's not good pastoral care, and it's not good friendship, either. My dad died of a, of a lung disease. He died of emphysema, which led to pneumonia at the age of 53, and uh, he in, in college and post-college, He he played basketball, he played baseball, he ran track, he was an athlete. By the time he was 45, he couldn't walk from the bed uh, to the bathroom without being on oxygen. And when he died uh, of this lung disease, I can't tell you how many people presumed that my dad was a smoker and came to me and said, man, too bad, let that be a lesson, never smoke. I wanted to punch him every time. I was so mad. Here's why. My dad told me this story uh, of, to exhort me not to smoke. He said, uh, he said, son, a cigarette has never touched my lips. And he told me this story about peer pressure when he was in college and how he withstood peer, peer pressure and he never smoked. And, and, and then, so when I, at the funeral, heard people saying, too bad your dad was a smoker. Ah, I was so mad, right? Don't tell me why suffering happened. You don't know. So don't be Job's friends. We do have a calling to be present with one another. But presence and proscription are two different things. So, suffering happens. Now, what's God's response in the midst of this? Well, the good news is this though we live in a fallen world, what matters most isn't threatened. And two things matter most companionship with God and God's people, and our own transformation. These things are not threatened. Nothing can ever take these things away. So let's talk about both of these things just for a minute. Number one, companionship. We're made for companionship with God and with one another. And one of the beautiful things about God's character is that in spite of sin, in spite of rebellion, in spite of loss, God's desire is always to be with us. Is it a fallen world? Yes. Broken? Yes. Filled with suffering? Yes. Loss? Yes. Pain? Yes. But throughout the Scripture... There is never a question about the companionship of God in the midst of suffering, and that's beautiful. You go all the way back to Genesis from the very beginning. when, When Adam sinned and ran, God runs after Adam. God is for humanity. When you pick up the story in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob has lied, cheated, stolen. His brother wants to kill him. He's on the run. He falls asleep in the desert. He has a dream, In the dream is a revelation from God, and God says this to him numerous times in Genesis 28. Have you blown it? Yes. Lied, cheated, stolen, on the run, fearful, anxious, and here's God, I will be with you. I'm for you. I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. No matter what you do, no matter what you face, God is with you. Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph, is where Asaph says, hey, I'm looking around at the world and my conclusion is that uh, wicked people have it better than righteous people. Like, what's up with that? That's my paraphrase of Psalm 73 in a nutshell, right? Like, why are good people suffering? And then, Asaph's conclusion is this, who do I have in heaven but you, God, and having you, I I love this, having you, I desire nothing else, you're enough. I don't have answers, I don't have healing, but I have companionship. So that then by the time we get to the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, uh, the angel says, you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us, God's with you. And at the end of the story, Matthew 28, just before Jesus disappears, what does he say? He says, lo, I am what? With you always, even at the end of the earth. In spite of rebellion, in spite of sin, in spite of suffering, in spite of everything, God has never given up on the world, never left the world. To the contrary, from the very beginning, God has been not only for us, but with us. So God's commitment is to be with people to walk with people in the wake of their failures, to walk with people in the midst of their suffering, to walk with people in the midst of their fears, their pain, their loss. And so the, 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 the beauty of the gospel, I say this all the time, the beauty of the gospel isn't that we're granted immunity from suffering, we're not. The beauty of the gospel is that in the midst of suffering, we are empowered to walk with our creator and know intimacy with God, and by the way, that intimacy, that intimacy shows up not only directly with God in prayer, but that intimacy shows up in the body of Christ. Like we're here for each other, walking together through valleys. So when, uh, when, when David said, hey, I'll fear no evil, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. How does God show up with us? Through one another. So that uh, we were uh, previewing this Beautiful video this morning in a little prayer time out front with staff. And uh, Nathan astutely observed, yes, yeah, as we look around the circle. This gal was there with Nikki in the hospital. This gal was there visiting in the hospital. Avery went with Nathan uh, to, to Rwanda. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a withness, if you understand. And if I could just stop and editorialize a little bit here. I'm, to, I'm just going to share with you, this, this withness, this you being the presence of Christ to me in my suffering is priceless. This is really the essence of what it means to be, to be church. Not getting sermons. You can get that kind of online. But virtual reality can never hug you. Virtu- virtual reality can never, can, can never weep with you, can never, can never walk with you we need each other because this is, this is how we show up for each other as the presence of Christ. So grief and mourning and anger, all appropriate responses to the reality of living in a fallen world. But we're invited then to pour that out to God and to walk with one another through that that suffering. And then the other thing that is never taken from us is the reality of our own transformation. The entire story of the Bible is a story of transformation. And, and, and you know, God's desire in the end is that every one of us would look more and more and more and more like Christ. In Isaiah 40, it says, uh, Every mountain and hill is made low, every valley is exalted, every crooked made straight rough places, plain, things are transformed. Romans 8 says that creation is groaning, waiting for our redemption, because when we're redeemed, everything is healed, and that everything healed is articulated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, as this, the summing up of all things in Christ. In other words, when history ends, The the end of the story looks like this. Everything in the universe saturated with the glory of Jesus. Everything. So no more disease, no more more suffering, no more death, no more broken relationships, no more oppression, no more injustice. Creation is groaning, but the end of the story is creation made whole. God is transforming everything. Now, what's true at the cosmic level is also true at the individual level so that when we come to Romans chapter 8... Verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine, we read this: God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to, according to God's purpose. And then verse twenty-nine articulates God's purpose. God's purpose is this: those that God knew, God predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. So here's what God is saying in Romans eight twenty-eight and twenty-nine: God causes everything to work toward the good, but never ever stop there in an attempt to comfort someone. (laughs) It's inadequate. The good that God is moving us toward is our capacity to display Jesus. In other words, our capacity to look like Christ. So when God is moving everything toward good, please don't define good as the absence of suffering. It's not. Good is this, in the midst of suffering, can I continue to be a person of hope and joy and mercy and peace? And the beautiful answer of the gospel is this, yes, you don't need to be be consumed by bitterness or self-pity, you don't need to be paralyzed interminably by loss. You don't don't need to withdraw from the world. God is so working in your life that you can become a person of hope not not only in spite of your suffering, but even precisely because of your suffering. It's amazing to me. So God has desired that the rough places in our life would be made plain, that the crooked places would be made straight. And the beauty of the gospel is this, God is saying in Romans eight twenty eight, nothing can come into your life that I cannot use to make you more like Jesus. That's tremendous. When my dad died, he was uh, he was fifty three. I was seventeen. It was young for him to go. I was young. I wasn't yet thinking too deep theologically. That's for sure. But I do remember a conversation with my dad because we had scrapbooks of him running track, playing basketball, I remember as a little kid, he'd play basketball, we'd play, we'd play one-on-one together in the, in, the, in the driveway, and then he got to a point where he couldn't even walk to the bathroom without oxygen. And, and so I said to my dad once, I remember asking him, shortly before he died, what's it like to have that as your past and now to be dealing with this disease. What's that like? Is that, is that hard? And I loved his answer. He said, It's really hard. Because I loved that life. And if I could write my own ticket, I'd want that life. And we prayed for his healing, and it never happened. He said, But at the same time, he said, uh, God has taught me new ways to love new ways to give, new ways to serve that I would never have learned without this. Yes, it's hard, but God, that's important. It's meaningful for me. God God can use it in redemptive ways. So this leads to the kind of the concluding observation here. The result for humanity is this. In the midst of our suffering, God is inviting us to companionship with God and transformation. That's really what's going on in the midst of suffering. The elements that make the gospel good news have to do not with immunity from suffering because we are not granted immunity. The gospel is good news because we have companionship with God in the midst of suffering And we have assurance that God uses the realities of the fallen world to to move us toward becoming more like Christ. But if you're not interested in either of those things, the gospel isn't very good news because you don't get immunity from suffering. So if I spend my whole life running from God because I want to be in control of my own life, if I don't want companionship with my creator, this isn't much of an offer, (laughs) And if I don't want transformation, this isn't much of an offer. So if God is like a store for me, like I go to God when I need stuff, rather than a father to me who's intent on giving me gifts in order that I might enjoy companionship with God. If God is a store, not a father, this isn't going to work for me. God is able to help, but the ultimate goal of any help offered by God is to invite us to intimacy. Intimacy. Why? Because God's desire is that we would run to God in every situation. Do you see? So when, when we're if I'm out on a run and there's a beautiful sunrise, I want to give thanks to my Creator. If I'm uh, uh, facing incredible stress over something at work. I want to run to my creator. If I suffer a devastating loss, I want to run to my creator. If I'm angry at God, I want to run to my creator with my anger. If I'm bitter, I want to run to God with my bitterness. If I have a question, I want to run to God with my question, but I want to go to God. Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. Because we are sons and daughters, we have the spirit of Christ in us so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can run to God. We can weep in God's presence. We can laugh, we can give thanks, we can celebrate, we can rejoice, we can mourn because we are sons and daughters of the living God. And we're called not only sons and daughters, but we're called God's bride. All of this points to God shouting at us that we're made for a level of intimacy that is analogous to our most intimate human relationships. God's this good parent, we're the child, God's a good husband, we're the wife. We're made for intimacy. So God is saying that until the day comes when the only thing left is light and light, until that day comes, what will sustain us in the midst of loss is learning to run to God. I get this with every fiber of my being. I'm adopted, so I, don't, I have no relationship with, I don't even know who my biological parents are. i am cut off. My dad was my best friend, and, he's, and he died early. Cut off. My sister died at 43 of a heart attack. Cut off. An associate pastor here was one of my best friends, and he died of cancer. Cut off. (laughs) Other friends have parted with me because I wasn't enough for them or didn't do something for them, wasn't there for them. Cut off. Here's the reality. All relationships end. That's super depressing. And it drives me to the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what it does so that after my dad had died and I'd gone into a deep depression, when some guy spoke at a ski camp on Jeremiah chapter 9 and said, don't let the rich man boast of his riches, don't let the mighty man boast of his might, don't let the strong man boast of his strength. If you'll boast, only boast of this, that you intimately know your creator. As soon as he said it, I knew this is for me. I'm made for intimacy with my creator. And I, I don't know if I would have been Able to receive that in the same way, were it not for the countless losses that preceded that message. God uses our suffering to prepare the soil of our heart so that we can cry, Abba Father, so that God becomes one into whose arms we freely run all the time. And that's intimacy. And that's beautiful. But we got to learn to run to God. Some of us don't, we disengage. And when we disengage, the pain is still there. And then we substitute all kinds of things for intimacy. Alcohol, sex, sports, work, cats, (laughs) binge watching the man in the high castle. And, And these distractions we use to avoid intimacy both with people and with God. Here's the bottom line. Life is risky and life will be painful. Literally, nobody, nobody escapes pain or loss or death. So all attempts to avoid suffering are folly. The better solution? Psalm 62, uh, verse 8. Trust in God, you people, and pour your hearts out to him. How beautiful is it to run to God and weep, to run to God with anger, to run to God with questions, but to come to God and allow God to wrap us in God's loving arms. And then we come to realize that we are the presence of God to one another as well. Uh, We were looking for this young woman who'd been buried search and rescue uh, arrived and uh, said, you guys need to leave now. And so I went to the young man uh, whose girlfriend had just been buried and I said to him, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I'm a pastor and I'd be happy to uh, walk out with you, call her family with you, if you want somebody to be with you. I I want to be with you. And this guy just burst into tears and threw his arms around me. And he said, don't leave. I need you. He doesn't need me, really. He needs Christ. But I'm the presence of Christ, you see. And so are you. But we cannot be the presence of Christ to one another if we don't know how to grieve well and receive the companionship of God. So that's how we close our time together this morning. All of us have experienced loss. Loss of a child. Loss of a parent. And not just death. Loss of a relationship. Loss of a place that we loved. And now we're here where it's dark all the time. I'm just gonna say to you, it's not only okay to grieve loss, It's important to grieve loss. And we wanna be a community that grieves well together. So I'm gonna invite you to to sit with your loss this morning and then come forward, if you would, and grieve the loss and then light the candle as a sign. God is with me in my loss. It's the presence of Christ. Showing up directly to my soul and showing up in the body one with another. We'll have prayer team members here available as well. But we don't, I, I don't want you to just come in here and have this be an academic thing because as we grieve well, we give testimony that Christ is the light of the world, the light of life. So let's worship together by responding.